Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest is Brett Beber, Assistant Professor of History at Old Dominion University. We are discussing his book, Violence and Racism in Football. Politics and Cultural Conflict in British Society, 1968 to 1988. Published by Pickering and Chato in 2011. At the college where I teach, here in the American Midwest, the most common type of professional sports apparel that my students wear are the jerseys of English Premier League football clubs. I have plenty of students who have attended matches at Story Grounds like Old Trafford and Craven Cottage during study programs in England. These students are surprised, though, when I tell them that 25 years ago, when I was in college, none of my sports-crazy friends gave any notice to English football. The only stories of English soccer that we got from U.S. sports media were reports of hooligan fights. We knew nothing of the game, the clubs, and the players. All we knew of English soccer was that its fans were violent thugs. As Brett Beber explains in his book, the British government was concerned already in the 1960s that episodes of violence at football grounds were casting a black mark on the sport and the nation as a whole. The message that government officials and journalists crafted then, the message that I heard in the 1980s, was that football supporters were drunken, violent hoods, an anti-social element that had to be controlled with strong measures. Brett's research looks at the development of this narrative and the corresponding policies that the government offices pursued in their attempts to control violence at football grounds. The main point of his findings, as he explains in our interview, is that these policies made the problem worse rather than lessening the violence. Yes, there were football fans who went to the grounds looking for a fight, but the policing of those grounds and the design of the terraces only made for a more hostile environment. Football violence has been the subject of a lot of scholarly attention, but Brett's exhaustive work in the archival records of the British government and police departments opens a revealing new perspective on the topic. Here's our interview. This week's guest on the podcast is Brett Beber. Brett, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for having me. So we'll start out by uh, having you give a, a 
bit of introduction about yourself. And uh, so you uh, went to school, went to college, undergraduate in, in my neighborhood in West Michigan. You're originally from Colorado. So uh, how is it that a, a son of uh, the American West who went to college in the Midwest became a scholar of, of English football? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I've been interested in sports for a long time. I was terrible at them as a, as a kid, but I uh, had an interest in sort of uh, what they do for people and in particular about fandom and why people become fans and how they sort of sustain those relationships with these teams that are sometimes amazing, sometimes terrible. Um, so I was naturally drawn to the, the case of British violence and football fans and um, and uh, have a strong interest, too, in post-war uh, British history and in the history of, um, well, class and gender and race in post-war Britain. And so this sort of seemed like the optimal lens through which to uh, analyze both of, those, both of those research threads, both trying to understand sports and their social impact and um, how those sports had an influence or reflected broader changes in British society after the end of empire. So are you a, a football fan as well then? Uh, I've become one, I must say. I've become one. Um, while I was there, I had, you know, if you're studying British sports violence while you're in Britain, everyone has a story for you. And so uh, I quickly became friends with other fans who who I have who happened to take me to a few matches. And, and uh, I eventually became a, a fan of West Ham United in East London, which was near some of the archives I was working at. So... Uh, I have become one uh, almost unwillingly. <laughs> yeah, so, I, so, do, I do enjoy the sport now and, and, and try to watch it when it's available in the States. Okay. So picking up on that, on the stories that you heard from fans, did you hear a lot of stories along the lines of things are a lot different now than they, than they used to be in going to yes, and that's Yes, that's right. And there's sort of a big thread. There's sort of a big, how should I say, this narrative about um, – about British football violence, that it's been solved, that it's been, um, and that Britain is now, and British security measures are now the model for the world. In fact, anytime we have a major tournament, the, the European Championships, the World Cup, there's always several stories that British and other newspapers run about how the British model for security has succeeded, and that even, you know, like in South Africa, they imported British security experts in effort to work on this. And that sort of troubles me quite a bit because um, some of these measures sort of I think impinge on civil liberties and they um, they also sort of don't quite understand sort of why fans are fans and the relationships that fans build and how they seek to act amongst one another and so there's there's quite a disconnect between the stadium management security measures and what fans are actually doing that I think still emerges that divide still emerges every once in a while when we see at every major tournament that there's still problems um, and that there's still sort of outbursts of violence that are that are often misunderstood sometimes not sometimes they're just blatantly violent but sometimes uh, they're misunderstood and this can this is sort of a narrative that I think needs to be challenged in general. So I also need to ask at the start, why why do we need a new study of football violence in Britain? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was sort of dissatisfied as I started looking into it. Um, there were basically sort of two big schools of thought. There were sort of... Um, those that studied racism in football and those that studied violence in football. And I really thought that these that there had to be a connection there. And the further I 
scratched at the surface, the further I was able to see that there was. And part of part of this book is trying to establish that connection. Um, I was also sort of interested in the fact that uh, nobody had looked at documentary evidence in in great detail. And that's sort of what historians do is apart from anthropologists and sociologists, of course. But um, there was a lot of intimate anthropological accounts of football violence and some uh, Bill Buford's Among the Thugs is the most popular one that several you know uh, professors used to teach with and is a great book. And um, these are great accounts of very intimate um, relationships where people have sort of uh, penetrated the exterior of fan groups and sort of got into their um, got into their worlds quite a bit. But uh, I was interested, as a historian, I was also interested in how the state responded. In most of the accounts of football violence, the state is sort of a background operator that's that's sort of um, absent most of the time. They're providing what is necessary to keep order, but there's no real account of, of what they were doing or how they were working. And um, as a historian, I wanted to, 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 get, to dive into that documentary evidence and found quite a bit of it and found some sort of shocking things in that evidence that hinted at how they were really found football violence to be a terribly embarrassing political problem and how it reflected poorly on the British state, the British nation. This wasn't just a problem for club authorities. It wasn't just a problem for local policemen. It wasn't just a problem for fans themselves. This was sort of emerging as a national um, dilemma. So turning to the book, I want to ask first about the, the historical context. And as a historian, that's that's one of the things you look to do is, is to place football violence within this uh, this larger frame. And uh, one of your main points is that the violence at football grounds has to be understood within the social and economic background of the 1960s. So, so looking at this issue as a historian, how was violence in football connected to these larger uh, social and economic problems in, in post-war Britain? Yeah, I mean, that's the key question, isn't it? You know, I mean, um, sports historians sort of... Uh, often take one of two roads or really try to, uh, the better history sort of try to unite two roads, which is one to look at sports as sort of a window onto the um, society in which those sports have emerged, uh, see it as sort of an, an open access to the social, political, cultural context. And then the other is sort of to see how sports actually change um, society and politics. And um, and again, the better history sort of try to do both. And, and so for me, it was when I started looking at the documentary evidence, the British state had had its eye on football for a very long time. In fact, British state was promoting football on both the grassroots and the professional levels as a way to enhance its international sporting reputation, to provide leisure for its citizens, especially in the post-war welfare state. You know, football and, and everyday activities were meant to be part of providing health, uh, healthy uh, political uh, or a healthy body politic for the state. And the more that I looked at this, there was a huge change in discussions about what football should do, how sports should be viewed by society, how politicians viewed sports, how politicians viewed uh, sort of working class participants in sports and sports spectatorship versus what they call more respectable or genuine spectators, which is often coded terms for middle class or upper class spectators. And this sort of really starts to occur basically about 1965 in different pockets of London and Glasgow in particular, and then really emerges in 19. 67, 68, 69. And so there's very particular dates that I could date this emerging as a real problem to. Now, of course, there had been violence or at least aggression at football matches long before that, dating all the way back to, you know, the 1890s, 1880s that some historians have pointed out. But there's a real change in the late 1960s where 
football violence takes on a classed element, I think, and that's part of the argument I make in the book, is that the end of the age of affluence in Britain and in post-war Europe generally um, really sort of signals problems for working class men and women in Britain generally, and then further with... Um, for working class football spectators, for supporters. And then the second sort of element that I've tried to weave in there, besides the sort of decline in the age of affluence and trying to understand how the state is reorganizing its um, its laborers and what they do in their leisure time, is this is the same time that the empire is declining, that um, up until 1962 there was, an, uh, there was an open door for formerly colonized subjects to return to London, to the metropole, to, to Britain itself. And those peoples are, uh, those formerly colonized peoples are now sort of being integrated into British society. And that causes real concerns, particularly for workers in Britain. And um, part of what my book tries to outline is, that, is, is to show that um, those conflicts uh, are sort of focused on, in the football arena. That that many of the political acts, the political acts of violence at football stadiums, are about working class politics, one, or about the integration of black workers' competition for housing with um, with some of these new migrants to Britain. So, following up on this point that that the violence is escalating in the mid to late 1960s. So, this is also the time, ironically, when England has its greatest football success in winning yep. the, the 1966 World Cup. Is there any connection you found, or are those events or developments distinct from each other? No, I mean, there is in the sense that, that the 1966 World Cup and the particular English team that won it was, as several have pointed out, was very working class in its character. A lot of those players were from um, either working class backgrounds or from clubs that were in working class districts like West Ham and East London. Um, and so it sort of becomes solidified, football becomes solidified as the working class sport around that time. Now that's 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 sort of in the minds of spectators sort of viewing what the team is like. At the same time, you know, the 60s and 70s are the time when, when sport is commercializing as well and, and sort of, you know, becoming more part of uh, the sort of modern advertising conundrum and is sort of taking on um, higher ticket prices, um, improved stadiums. Um, and it's becoming harder and harder for working class fans to afford this leisure that's on offer. And so at the same time that it's sort of becoming a... Um, not ideologically, but sort of, uh, well, sort of allying itself with the working class, that the teams, the sport itself is becoming more working class in its flavor. At that very same time, working class men and women in particular can, are having are finding it harder to afford um, going to the matches. So, you know, this is where some of the frustration comes out, where, um, pe- where particularly where people are trying to sneak into matches or sort of bum-rushing the gates to try to get their way in. This is sort of evidence that this is harder for them to make their way to the games. Um, so, Class plays a, plays a very fracturing role in this, in in sort of understanding this complex of factors that's going on around the late 1960s. So something you discuss in the book is how this rising violence in the, in the mid to late 60s and then into the 70s is uh, is discussed by the British press as well as by politicians, government officials, in terms of national decline. So could you talk about talk about that? Yeah, that's a that's a that's sort of a, a strong sort of um, theme in both press discourses and in the discourses of politicians. I mean, I think it sort of has a couple of outcomes. Um, I mean, uh, 
much of this is 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 about sort of the decline of the empire and about Europe. What's going on in the background here is that not only is Europe's empire declining, but the United States and Russia are rising as the world's two superpowers, and 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 Europe sort of caught in between. Britain, in particular, having sort of navigated its way through World War II and been supportive of American measures after World War II, finds its its um, sort of industry declining by the 70s and 80s, and its sort of national prowess and imperial prowess declining even before that in the 50s and 60s. Um, and British politicians, of course, are sort of trying to find ways to bolster their national image um, at the same time that they feel like it's getting away from them. And so football sort of throws a monkey wrench into that notion of British greatness because British football fans, when they travel abroad, are a terrible image of the nation, uh, frankly, and and reflect very poorly on those national values. And when the sport is meant to be emblematic of the nation, and when Britain won the World Cup in 1966 and sort of asserted that that's, that this sport, soccer in particular, football in particular, was now allied with Britain, um, with its national identity, then when British fans start to move abroad and go to games for European competitions on the continent in the late 60s and early 70s, then that image is and so our politicians, um, or the politicians that are actors in this book, sort of discuss national decline as sort of a background factor to why workers might be acting this way, sort of in private, but more in public, sort of blame them for being part or or sort of symbolic of national decline, for, for actually producing a sense of national decline by taking this image of aggressiveness and violence and hooliganism to, to the continent. So in following up on these, on your discussion of these episodes of violence overseas on the continent or, or in overseas tournaments, you talk about how with these episodes, football violence became a matter for the foreign office. Yeah, that's right. So, so how, did, how did diplomats and officials in the foreign office handle football violence? Yeah, well, there's, there's basically about four or five big incidents that happened between 1968 and 1975 that uh, both conservative and labor politicians had their eye on. But the Foreign Office really gets involved um, on the ground with these incidents as they happen. So, for instance, when there's an attack on fans in Amsterdam in 1974 and another in Paris in 1972, it's the Foreign Office that has to deal with foreign police that has to basically get these fans, uh, process these fans through the foreign legal system, through the Dutch legal system, and try to get them back home. Um, so the Foreign Office gets very involved in sort of uh, on, on, on a couple of different levels, on sort of processing citizens and citizens' problems abroad and sort of and working to uh, come to some resolution with the foreign government in order to get them home, as well as sort of managing the British image abroad, too. They're, they're, they're also um, responding to telegrams coming from uh, from the Home Office in Britain and from um from Parliament in Britain, sort of trying to manage the image of what this looks like, and and I think what's in, what's interesting is that what they find is that they really don't have a leg to stand on. That the fans were acting terribly abroad. Um, in in particular, foreign incidents were really pointed. I mean, it takes quite a bit of effort to you know hop a boat or a plane to go somewhere, uh, then to reconvene, then to try to raise havoc as a group. I mean, that's far more planned and uh, takes up far more uh, greater amount of execution than it does to just sort of show up at one's home stadium and participate in whatever's going on, whatever's going on during the day. So, you know, managing an explanation for the Dutch government for why this attack happens in 1974 or in, or in the case in the book and managing uh, British football fans' complaints about Dutch police brutality um, was a particularly sticky case that the Foreign Office had to deal with. 
So you mentioned earlier Bill Buford's book, Among the Thugs, and I recall in, in one of the opening chapters, uh, there's this scene, It's uh, they do go to the Netherlands, I believe, for, the, for one of those opening round games, and, and there are officials from the foreign office who meet them at the match site and kind of are conducting this, this group of fans around the city. So do you see, was there a development in that direction within the foreign office that rather than reacting to events, they're going to attempt to... Uh, kind of placate the situation and control fans as much as possible before any violence broke out? Yeah, um, certainly there was. I mean, I mean, you know, I think even going to a match today, you see that there are British officials um, abroad and, and team officials, club officials, um, authorities from, from the football bodies that are there sort of managing, managing things as well. But that's certainly true that, that they're initially sort of caught off guard. But, of course, they make adjustments just like police and stadium managers make adjustments to how to basically corral uh, football fans from plane to hotel from hotel to states to to the stadium site and then getting them back to the hotel or back to the boat on which they can leave and they even you know um they work by the late 1970s both the foreign office and the home office is working with travel tourism companies to try to minimize the time that football fans have um in idleness, essentially, so that they don't cause problems. And, and, I mean, football specials in Britain are still timed around getting fans to and from the stadium as quickly as possible. If you go to football match today, you'll still see that sort of fans are corralled, uh, separated and corralled from train station to stadium by things like horses and dogs as they move their way through. And, of course, police barricades and things like that as well. But, of course, the, the Foreign Office makes adjustments. What was problematic for me is that there's a 30-year will on all British public records. So at the time that I was doing research from about 2006 to 2009, I could only see up to 1979 to the changes that they made. And clearly they were making some adjustments, but in the future it'll be for other historians to figure out what drastic responses the the state, home office, foreign office made in the 1980s. Well, let's look then at at what you were able to research in terms of reactions by the British government to football violence within within Britain. So... um, First of all, can you tell us which offices of the government dealt with violence at, at football matches, and what was the general approach they took to these problems? That's excellent. So that's a great question. So this was part of the this is part of the historian's work of figuring all this out. So <laughs> the Home Office initially, uh, the earliest records are from the Metropolitan Police, which is a special district of police within London. It's sort of unlike any other. It sort of harkens back to to an earlier sort of um, royal police force, and and it has sort of special status, the, the Metropolitan Police. And so they generate early records about what's happening in London, but nowhere else. But what they do is that they ask other city police officers and other police authorities for reports on what's going on in Glasgow, Manchester, and Liverpool, um, in Leeds. So when you open up the archival folders, you see not only the, the London Meepo report, the Metropolitan Police report, but you also get all of the information that they collected from other places. And um, the Metropolitan Police Office soon gets the Home Office involved, who's interested in sort of providing domestic security, has a sort of vague charge of responsibilities that involves sort of managing peace and harmony within Britain domestically. And the Home Office um, is involved very quickly from about 1969 forward in trying to solve the problem, trying to figure it out. Because remember that in the, in the late 1960s, they sort of imagined that this is a short-term problem that's a response to 
to something that they don't quite understand that you need to solve and move on. And so from, from about the late 1960s through the 1970s, the home office, and then later the Department of the Environment, which is a new uh, office that's created in the mid-1970s, have sole control over managing these issues. Now, the head of the, de- the, head of the Department of the Environment is one of Britain's early undersecretary ministers for sport. Um, a man named Dennis Howell, who was a former FA referee, he was a um, he was a, ma- a, a member of the Labour Party, uh, and he sort of had sole control over managing this problem. He creates what's called these working parties that are meant to investigate the problems that are happening um, uh, around certain particular issues. So he, he chairs the first working party in football hooligans, and he gets a, for, a couple of former um, English football authorities and managers to serve on this committee. Um, and they sort of start to travel to stadiums, police districts, um, even sort of observe matches to try to figure out what's going on. And of course, la- the, the Labor Party uses Howell's involvement and Howell's working party as evidence that they're attempting to solve the problem, as evidence that they're interested in people's lives, and sort of so that Labor Party uh, labor labor MPs can return to their constituencies and say we're working on this problem. Right? Uh, clearly, we have a special committee that's working to solve it. They're doing research. They're interested in it. So it's a, it's a Home Office and the Department of Environment working together from the late 1960s through the 1970s. This happens on the conservative side too, when the conservatives take over in the middle of the 1970s for a, short, for a brief period of time. But they're the two offices that generated the most documentary material for me to look at. Now, at the same time, the football authorities are interested, and they're sending reports. Um, the FA and the Football Association are sending reports to uh, to Dennis Howell, to the Home Office, to the Department of the Environment. Individual um, police stations are sending reports almost weekly of what's happening. So there's this huge amount of documentary material that, if you piece it together, can tell you what's happening in each place in each amount of time. Um, not to mention that at the same time, the uh, several different bodies of the government were funding early research, psychological and sociological research, into what was happening. So one of the first reports on football hooliganism in 1968 comes from a group of um, psychologists working at the University of Birmingham who were asked to figure out this problem for the government. And they really can't do much because they work with a few series of fairly simple surveys, but they do sort of provide some answers to say that this isn't simply about people being angry or aggressive or thuggish in their activities, that there is something behind this. Yeah, and I want to ask there, one of our past guests on the podcast, Kevin Young, talked about his early research as a sociology student in Britain in the 1980s focused on football violence, and he talked about how much of that early research in the social sciences was funded by the government with an eye toward remedying the situation. So in the research you've done in the official documents, did you see much evidence that that policy was actually shaped by these uh, social scientific studies? That's an interesting question. I don't know how much di- policy is directly affected. What you see, I think, is... Um, politicians trying to create an image of law and order in particular. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of political theater, you know, in that um, football violence provides an opportunity for several different politicians to, to wax eloquent about how they're the salve for this particular problem in Britain. It's used in campaigns. It's used as a way to demonstrate authority, to demonstrate competence of the government. It was a 
uh, ostensibly for them, they viewed it, I think, as a solvable problem. This is something we can take on and fix and provide and return to people that are frustrated by football violence and say we're taking care of this. And of course, it persists. It's not easily solved. It has long and deep roots and and um, roots in sort of psychological, sociological, political roots that aren't sort of easily um, addressed, questions that aren't easily addressed. So they find that it persists, but it does constantly allow them to articulate that they are that they are authoritative. And I think that's part of the goal um, in particular. Well, for instance, the choice of Dennis Howell as a former referee to head up the under um, the undersecretary of sports office was a clear choice to sort of basically these football fans to say that fans, too, can be, you know, uh, can be controlled in the same way that players can by a referee. So do you see any difference in the way that that labor and conservative governments handled handled the problem? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, for starters, labor produced far more uh, produced far more reports, commissioned far more working parties on the issue, in part because they had predominantly working class constituencies. Um, and so they were concerned about sort of solving what to them seemed like a problem of their rank, the rank and file of their party. Um, they also, interestingly, they also connect the Labor Party connects it to sports participation on the ground level. Um, the Labor Party, in seeking to sort of hold on to the welfare state by the 1970s, sees sports violence not only as a threat to uh, to the leisure of watching sports in a stadium, but also as a threat to sort of sports participation on the ground level. If, if kids are seeing, um, you know, seeing both both fans and players on the field being violent, then they're not going to want to participate as much in the sport and therefore will have sort of problems of declining health, will have problems of failing internationally and international sports competitions because we won't be generating as many athletes. And so there's a real concern with um, how this links to sort of the broader public, um, how this image of football violence in stadiums is not just a problem of leisure, but it's also a problem that relates to more broader understandings of how sport and health operate in Britain. Um, the Conservative Party, on the other hand, uses it also as a way to demonstrate their law and order principles and as a way to sort of um, articulate uh, how they will establish authority in society, basically, you know, by the use of an iron fist and by the use of law. But they are far less concerned with um, commissioning research and um, far less concerned with trying to understand the underlying roots of the problem. For instance, Eldon Griffiths, who's the, who's the Minister of Sport interim period during the 1970s when the Conservatives control the British administration, is clearly interested in solving the problems and fields question, questions about this in, in the House of Commons very frequently, but uh, doesn't visit any sites, uh, doesn't take as much interest in really understanding how it works in the same way that Howell does when he's in charge of the operation under labor. Now, Brett, of course, a, a football fan, a true football fan, would never talk about such a thing as British football. <laughs> so, so, And yet you talk about the work of the British government. So did the government, in, in their policies, did they make any distinctions in their analyses or in their policies between football in England and Scotland? Not as much as you might think. Not as much as you might think. For them, it's a public order problem. For them, it's a policing problem. For them, it's a stadium management problem. And stadiums for them are the same in Glasgow as they are in London. Um, policing tactics should be universal. 
right? Not only uh, should they shouldn't only work in English cities, they should also work in Scottish cities. So there is consideration, for instance, when the working parties visit old firm in Scotland, there is consideration for for the for the idea that there's an extra element mm-hmm. of religious sectarianism going on here. Um, but they imagine for them that the solutions to the problem should be the same universally. And of course, this supports this notion that this now that the model for solving um, English or Scottish football violence um, in the Isles can now be transported to a place like South Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Because these strategies are the are the are the sole means to remove the problem. They are total. They are universal, rather than understanding the sort of underlying context that shape football aggression and, and forms and styles of football consumption across the globe. So one of the specific strategies that you talk about in the book is uh, are government-mandated changes to football grounds to prevent violence in the terraces, to prevent pitch invasions. And yet what you find is that these mandated changes at grounds actually exacerbated violence. So can you talk about that? Yeah, this is this is uh, this was the best. This was the most fun part <laughs> of the book to write and to and to read about. So um, I was interested in how the physical space and the divisions in physical space sort of had an impact on both policing tactics and strategies, whether or not that was effective, and on how fans acted. And some of this is very interpretive, um, but it was interesting to see that when fans were separated, corralled, and sort of put in different areas of the stadium, it's not too far a leap to say, I think, that encouraged uh, some forms of violence because now the enemy was in a, uh, the enemy being the uh, opposing group of football fans was now in a confined space. You knew where they were. They were wearing their colors. They they were organizing and and um, communing and socializing in a particular area. And the early forms of football violence that emerge, something called end taking, um, in addition to sort of the pitch invasions that, that emerge early on, only can occur when fans are segregated, right? So taking an end, a particular area, an end being the place behind the goal where the majority of the sort of rowdy football fans um, watch the match from taking an end can only happen when spectators are segregated. Um, so this is sort of in, an interesting idea that when that when we sort of divide up the physical space within a stadium, not in terms of an individual four-foot-by-four-foot four space, which is what we do in modern stadiums, but in terms of big collectives of people, that this might perhaps sort of encourage um, interaction between the groups rather than separating it. Now, of course, they put stewards and police along the lines between the two teams, as they do today, as to keep them separated. And this has sort of worked. But it works today in the modern world because it's coupled with the idea that you sit in an individual space. In the 1960s and 70s, when this was uh, when people were in open terraces, where they didn't have to stay in an individual four-foot-by-four-foot four space in the stadium, that socializing and that um, that sort of interaction amongst fans was far more frequent. Um, and so that's that's one way, I guess, in which physical space sort of has an outcome. But what I was also interested in is how um, the government sort of encouraged things like pens, um, the sort of um, even the early forms of fences that are very popular in Latin America today that fence people in to avoid them from rushing the field. Um, crush barriers, which are barriers that are put every four feet, literally to prevent people from crushing one another. How all of these implements, sort of how the British came to rely on them as solutions, first and foremost, but then also uh, sort of what the impact was on, for the experiences of fans as they moved within them. And even moats, you talk about moats. 
Yeah, moats was sort of moats and and uh, and my other favorite was uh, dye in sprinkler systems that might be used to uh, spray offending fans who could then be arrested later. And the only problem with this was that as soon as they installed a dyed sprinkler system, uh, fans went right over the sprinkler, wanted to get sprayed with the paint as soon as possible as a badge that they had participated in the day's activities. Yeah, that was one of my favorites. And and this uh, the this engineering company that had backed this dyed sprinkler company, this dyed sprinkler idea was looking to make money off of it and the british government basically said yeah your 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 idea does the exact opposite of what we wanted to do no thank you um so that i mean little stories come out like that but yeah there were ideas for moats there were ideas for uh like spiked fences there were ideas for release systems where there were fences that could be released on a moment's notice if crushing got too involved um i mean there were there were literally scientists and engineers working on this problem for the british government to try to both come up with a commercial and perhaps a state-supported response. Um, you know, very few moats were ever implemented, but it sort of created this idea that the field was a fortress to be defended, you know. Um, a lot of the political cartoons, which is one of the sources I look at in the book, um, absolutely pillory this notion of the field being completely separate from the fans. You know, there's one great political cartoon showing uh, three men putting a young man into a catapult. They're going to launch him over the moat and onto the field in an effort to continue his activities or others that showed, you know, big oversized gorillas on chains that would be policing the edges or the borders of the field. Um, And all of these things were sort of hinting at the idea that that fans and others, even others that were outside, you know, these, these political journalists sort of felt like this idea was ludicrous. So a ludicrous idea is, is spiked <laughs> fences. What, what about, was anybody saying, let's just put in seats? Was that idea circulating around? Yes. It really emerges in the 1980s as a viable option because it's expensive. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when we talk about terraces, many of the terraces, particularly in lower divisions, weren't even cement terraces. They were dirt hills with, you know, crush barriers installed in them. Um, very rudimentary sort of implements for what we might consider in modern technology or modern stadium design. But um, they were expensive. So, I mean, even Arsenal, which is one of the first to sort of make the change to a um, – to an all-seated stadium struggles with how to pay for it. A fairly wealthy club in North London struggles with how to pay for the changes that would need to happen to stadiums. And of course, the British government's concerned about this. When they mandate changes, when they say, okay, legally, architecturally, now, you know, we have to start to sort of try to control these fans, you know, how do we do it? The state is worried that if they impose too much on clubs, say if they impose the idea of individual seating too early for clubs or earlier on in the 70s, they were interested in imposing closed circuit television on clubs. They were worried about how they were going to pay for it. And there's a moment in the 1970s, not just a moment, but a period of about a decade from, say, the early 1970s to the early 1980s, where football in Britain as an industry is almost broken. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that that happens at the early commercialization of the sport, at the period of early commercialization of the sport. But, you know, declining attendances because of football violence, concerns about... um, uh, about the divide between, say, the top five or ten clubs and everyone else, really puts football as, a, at an, indus- as an industry at a disadvantage. And so uh, we see the government in these years not wanting to impose too much onto um, the football authorities and the individual clubs themselves because they don't want to make them bankrupt. And particularly, they're worried about the middle and lower clubs within, or middle and lower divisions. And I wanted to ask about this because because the clubs of the 70s and early 80s were not like 
in terms of resources and revenues, the clubs of the EPL. So uh, what role did the clubs have in in this process of, of restraining violence? Were they were they somewhat resistant? Did they just kind of cede the issue to the to the government and hope that the government took care of it? Or, or did they have any active cooperation in what the government was doing? It's a good question. You know, um, I probably first should say that some of that's unknown because clubs' files and their records are under lock and key of the clubs themselves, much like corporate records would be um, anywhere else. But um, you do see officials from clubs uh, popping up in the government records as hosts of those visiting parties, um, as sort of um, advice givers to these working parties on what they see in their places at their times um, or at their stadiums um, during the era. And so they do show up every once in a while, but mostly when they appear is when they have to pay for something. So, you know, uh, when stewards in the mid-1970s become sort of the new way to solve fan violence, stewards being basically selecting fans, uh, well-behaved fans from the audience, paying them a small fee to, you know, act um, sort of like police, but not quite like police, to identify individuals who might be troublesome, but without the power to arrest them, you know, to, to essentially provide, sometimes even just provide a, blo- a body that blocks, um, you know, that acts as a barrier from a particular part of the stadium. When stewards start to be used in the mid-1970s, there's real concern about who's going to pay for them. Um, British Rail, who used stewards on trains, fought tooth and nail with clubs over who would pay for the stewards. Um, Policing costs were high. I mean, you know, getting a police officer to come to a match on a Saturday to serve as a um, on-duty officer on a Saturday usually required paying overtime. It usually required manipulating police schedules, which most police districts and most police officers weren't willing to do. Um, It was not easy. And so managing, you know, from you know, in the early, in the mid 1960s, even in the, in the 1940s, 1950s, um, the ratios between police and fans were like, you know, maybe one to one to a thousand, one to two thousand. By the 1970s, the ratios are literally like one to 30, one to 40. And so they're having to employ far more police to make the day's activities more orderly. And that costs money, that costs overtime pay, and it's very difficult to manage and to establish. So clubs, and the government sort of attempted to work together, but usually that cost got pushed back onto back onto the government. In fact, it's really interesting because clubs were often willing to assume costs that were directly on the grounds, right? Because that is their technically their private property. So you know they're paying for the maintenance, the control of their private property. Clubs were more willing to pay for police within stadiums, but that policing only happens for the two hours of the match. All the entire day's activities where you need police, you know, from eight or nine in the morning through seven or eight in the evening, if it's an afternoon game, the police you need at surrounding pubs, the police you need at the rail stations, the police you need um, at um, along the trains and even on the trains costs far more and costs the government far more money than what the clubs were paying for to have police in the grounds for the two hours of the match. So something you talked about at the start of the interview was that you were looking to make a connection of uh, violence in football and racism in football. And I want to ask you about the, the creation of various anti-fascist and anti-racist fan groups. And, and this is something you know you know the prominence of these initiatives, uh, but you're actually critical of their effectiveness. So can you talk about that? Yeah. Again, it's hard to – you have to avoid – 
this idea that they're antagonists and protagonists in the story. I mean, clearly, you know, when I started, I'll be honest, when I started, I thought, oh, okay, I'll look at these racist groups and I'll look at the anti-racist groups and it'll be clear to see, you know, the dynamics between the two and I'll know what I'm, what I'm supposed to be favoring, right? Or, or, or what to be, what to sort of, how I might write this. Let's put it that way. Um, but the more I get into it, the more I realize that a lot of the early anti-racist groups were incredibly violent in their approach to anti-racism. And the connection that I make is that a more chaotic envi- environment that promotes aggressive territoriality, that um, engenders a sense of conflict between rival groups, is going to be open, at least, if not even encouraging towards forms of racism. Right? Because it fits that same sense. If the context in the 1970s and 1980s is concern about integrating blacks into the workforce, about integrating them into neighborhoods, about integrating them into the nation, period, then a place that encourages articulations of conflict and um, promotes sort of a sense of um, one being interior versus one being exterior, then we might we might have expected that racism would have merge in football as well. That's one link. The one that I really emphasize in the book, though, is that anti-racists very much adopt the violent approach to reducing violence. Okay, So if if, um, the state itself sort of created somewhat violent environments using police dogs and horses and uh, aggressive police tactics to prevent violence within stadiums in the 1960s and 1970s and all the way through to the 1980s as well, then by the time that anti-racists emerge, um, what they're articulating is a violent approach to stamping out racism. So um, one of the most telling examples of this are, are sort of a group that emerges and leads and Lester, both of which um, sort of articulate ways to um, to stamp out racism in the stands. Uh, they call on aggressive forms of masculinity. A real anti-racist man fights against racism with his fists. Um, a real anti-fascist, uh, a real anti-fascist, a real uh, you know um, left-leaning um, s- street politician. Uh, uses his fists to fight the fascists that are selling papers around the football ground. There's a real aggressiveness and a, and a real sort of um, adoption of the same forms of um, promoting order and sanitizing conflict that occurred by the state in the 1960s and 70s that emerges amongst anti-racist and anti-fascist groups in the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, to, to be blunt, both anti-fascists and neo-nationalists, neo-fascists in the 1980s and 1990s were always looking for a fight. This was how politics was conducted on the fringe. I mean, they, this is they fought for street corners. They fought for control of places to sell papers. They fought for control of the entrance to stadiums. Um, and football sort of is in the background of those political actions, but it gets critically involved in them when those battles happen around football stadiums, within football stadiums, when neo-nationalists demonstrate at football stadiums and anti-fascists come to meet them. These sort of forms of street politics that I try to highlight in the book really become implicated in football in the 1980s and 1990s. So, Brett, you mentioned earlier that you were limited in terms of access to government documents up till about uh, records up to about 1979. And uh, it was just a couple of months ago that the government, British government, released documents related to the Hillsborough disaster 
1989. So in looking at that report and at, the, at those documents um, about Hillsborough, did, did that match your analysis of the previous decades, or was there anything surprising for you as someone who studies, who studies this issue, what, what came out about Hillsborough? No, for, I mean, for the most part, it did match up. I think one of the sort of terrible things about some of the documents I came across in the late 60s and early 70s, long before Hillsboro, um, was that they knew that there were dangers. They knew that there were that there were potential that there was potentially fatal dangers to British fans should they sort of establish or institute these forms of division of physical space of so these these sort of vi- somewhat violent architectural environments. Um, for instance. There's an instance in some working party files where they say that where um, Walter Winterbottom and a former English uh, team manager, as well as sort of other members of the working party, articulate sort of some reservations that, one, stadiums are starting to look like concentration camps, and two, that there's a real potential here that people could get fatally injured. In the mid-1970s, the Department of the Environment commissions a study on how much bodily pressure a crush barrier could withhold, basically trying to establish how many people they could fit in a pen before people's chests would start to crumble under the weight of those behind them on these crush barriers. And they literally determine a sort of tolerance for how much they feel the average person can stand. So there's there's at least a recognition that this can cause bodily harm. It can even cause sort of uh, uh, broad instances of fatality. And then when the early disasters start to happen, like Ibrox in 1971, which is sort of um, which is sort of an odd disaster, it happens as people are trying to leave and enter a stairwell, not related to the match very much at all, um, but sort of represented what a terrace looked like. A stairwell sort of looks like what a terrace would look like, and certainly it was within a stadium, so it sort of raised red flags. Um, all of people were recognizing that this could potentially be fatal, and yet the desire to maintain order was greater than the desire to prevent um, a massive problem. And so, you know, earlier, it's, it's a difficult, well, it's difficult to put blame on someone for these disasters, right? But the things that are emerging about cover-ups, the things that are emerging in the Hillsboro, um, in the Hillsboro report about um, police who understood, who understood that they were proactively blaming football fans for this violence, um, those things uh, are in line with the perceptions of football fans that I highlight in my own book as well. So I'll ask to finish up, Brett, what are you working on now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm sad to say I'm moving a little bit away from sports, um, but I have gotten, I've gotten very interested in uh, these anti-racist movements and um, in particular about the assertion of ideas of civil rights in Britain. And so I'm working on a history of how the British government goes about importing um, ideas of desegregation and civil rights into Britain. So rather than focusing on migrants or migrants' lives themselves and trying to understand how the state worked to basically desegregate Britain. And a couple of the groups that show up in my book in the second half on race, integration, and anti-racism also had a wide range of activities that had to do with housing, employment, education, um, and even sort of sort of public uh, relations. And I'm, and I'm really trying to understand that idea. I think the book's tentatively titled Desegregating Britain, and it's going to try to understand how the British state worked to borrow notions from America about civil rights and integration. So thinking of that in, in terms of looking at this similar theme across British history and American history, something that I've thought of whenever I read about 
uh, football violence in Britain in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is, is why don't you have something... Sim- yes, there are fights at games in the States, but why don't you see violence to the same extent? You know, there were, there were the similar economic and social changes in the states that you saw in Britain, but, but why didn't it uh, manifest itself in, in that type of large-scale violence at sports events, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a brilliant question. It is the question, and it's a question I get, get asked most often when I present at conferences in America. Um, and I can only sort of conjecture at a couple of ideas for an answer. Um, I was talking with a colleague who basically said, you know what the equivalent of British football violence is in America? It's not at the professional level. It's maybe not even at the collegiate level. It's at the high school level, mm-hmm. where high school sports engender far more sort of incidences of violence than um, than sort of professional or collegiate sports do. And, you know, he said that because the ages match up, you know, more adolescent sort of violence than and, and the sort of identification that one has in a smaller group rather than with a massive franchise like the you know like a like a big sports franchise um and so he said you know the equivalent here it seems to me sociologically is the connection that we make with high school sports where and some high school events at least some of the ones that i remember going to are far more policed than than some college or pro events where everybody sort of understands that there's a level of decorum that won't be betrayed um and i think that's one way to answer it is to say that you know britain's far more local Uh, There are far more clubs. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is that there's 82 clubs in a country that's basically the size of Arizona, right? 82 clubs in a country that's basically, you know, that's that's very small. So most of these clubs, though some of the top 10 have huge global massive followings and are widely commercialized and globalized almost in their spectatorship, um, a majority of clubs are still very local in their intentions and their identity. Um, And not just their market, who they're selling to, but what they want to craft themselves as. so and, and that makes sense to me because some of the first places where violence emerged were clubs like Millwall, a sort of second-tier team that had a very strong, white, conservative, working-class identity in the center of London. Um, and so maybe it's, you know, it's that uh, British sports in particular far more localized. Um, I can only hint at an explanation for why that is, but that's the big question. I mean, that's one of the huge questions that I think people are really starting to struggle with is is why is there a violent tradition connected to some sports that doesn't even hint at emerging in others i mean you know the 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 malice at the palace the problem at detroit in 2005 you know um was indicative it was almost a reminder that sports should be socializing activities for youths and the fact that that narrative that idea that sports are socializing for youths was was sort of um, interrupted by this violence was immediately met by all sorts of moralizing ideas that violence has to be written out of american sports and we can't have this anymore and we need we need more pressure on players to act properly and i mean i think what that showed me at least in my in my interpretation was that there wasn't much violence that this was that this was sort of uh, an outlier that really caused people to be overly concerned about American sports and the direction that American sports were taking. You've been listening to an interview with Brett Beber about his book, Violence and Racism in Football, Politics and Cultural Conflict in British Society, 1968 to 1998, published in 2011 by Pickering and Chato. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from politics to science and technology. 
If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week. Music